Jack Spierka with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is Thursday, October the 26th, 2023. This is episode 3398 of the Survival Podcast. It is a Thursday under the new schedule. You know what that means. It's Thursday, 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 Monster Show of the Week with the Expert Council Q&A. And I've got a big lineup for you today, a Super Bowl-worthy or maybe even World Series as we're heading into that. And my son and grandson are very happy because the Texas Rangers are playing the Houston Astros in an all-Texas World Series. I care not, except for my son and grandson are happy, which is why I mentioned it. Anyway, that's not what we're talking about today. We will not be talking about bread and circuses, uh, maybe a little bit, in the Ron Paul Liberty Highlights. Kicking us while we're down, another $105 billion for other countries, Dan McAdams and Ron Paul. I don't know if they got the update. The, the, the package is up to something like $114 billion right now. They're going to give, if it passes, which it probably will, because the new speaker isn't who he says he is. Let's just watch and see. Uh, it's, it's $14 billion of the $114 billion is going to go to, you, to, uh, to Israel. And they're calling it like the Support Israel Act or some bullshit. $60 billion. $60 billion is going to go to guess who? Ukraine. In the support Israel bill, right? Support Israel package, whatever it is. And $10 billion is going to go to who? Freaking Gaza. Hamas. Yeah, and then other random shit for the rest. So that what they'll do, like they always do, and I'm, I know I'm grandstanding a little bit here, but what they'll do, like they always do, is they'll put some money, there's money in it for the border, which just is more money to do nothing, right? So I would oppose that, because you're not going to do anything with the money. If you don't have a plan to do something about the people coming into the country, then money for the border doesn't do anything. There's some other shit that they put in there, like some shit for our military or something, some small token. And then you know what they're going to do? Anybody that votes against it, whatever their thing is, they'll be like, he says he supports the troops, but he voted against money for the troops. He said he supports a strong border, but he voted against money for the border. He said he stands with Ukraine, but he voted against Ukraine money. He said he stands with Israel, but he voted against Israel money, right? That's what they're going to do. Why? Because it's what they always do. Anyway, Chris Rossini in the same group there over at the Ron Paul team asked a simple question. Why the hell can't America simply mind its own damn business? I don't know, but I sure wish we would. Doc Bones will talk about why some governments are now asking all citizens... To carry Narcan, I should change that to city governments because it's it's happening at like a city level, as far as I know right now. It's definitely happening in New York. I've seen some social media chatter on this that I find well, I find like the people making the comments. I kind of smack them in the mouth. I'll explain when we after Doc Bones give you his thought on this. Sean Mills, we'll talk about how to expand an existing solar powered system. Doctor Ken Berry, we'll talk about buying beef in bulk. And how to allocate and know how much to buy for a family of six. Then the answer to that, I'll let Ken give his answer. My answer is kind of, it depends, and you're going to find out when you buy that first half or quarter or whatever, and start using it. And then you'll be able to do a better job in the future of projecting what you really need to buy. Professor C.J. Kilmer will give his history professor's take on the creation of the Federal Reserve. Next up today, we have Ben Falk on thoughts on making hard cider and you know standard apple cider. 
Uh, this is a time of year for doing that. Patrick Rohrman will talk about the best way to remove rust from old knives. And I'm going to say something at the end of that segment that's going to be, if you haven't done it yet, don't do it at all. If this is a collectible knife, which it sounds like it is. Uh, John Pugliano will talk about IPO. That's initial uh, product offering. Uh, flops. And I say initial public offering of stocks, IPO flops, catching falling knives, money market scams, and more, and why John is not invested heavily in the markets right now, and neither am I. Okay? Jack will talk about, that's me, by the way, about how to safely use propane heaters for emergency backup heat, and that'll tie into our item of the day. I had a question about the Big Buddy propane heaters. And keeping that big grill tank outside, I'll tell you why you don't really have to, but why it makes sense to do it anyway. Because it's really easy to do, and it falls in with extra safety precautions you should be taking anyway. I'll give you a whole uh, understanding of why this absolutely irrational fear of portable propane heaters indoors needs to go away and crawl up its own butthole and die. All of that and more right now as we dive straight on into it with our first segment today from the Ron Paul team kicking us while we're down and why can't America mind its own damn business? This looks more and more, I'm not the first person who said this, looks more and more like Biden's campaign strategy. I'm going to show that I'm a world leader, I'm a wartime president, you even talked about that, I'm a wartime president, uh, and that's going to take the place of him having to actually campaign. He's not going to have to debate President, former President <coughs> Trump, he's not going to have to appear because he's too busy manning all these wars that he wants, and as you say, he's looking for a three-front war, that's going to cost some money, so he turns to Congress, if we can put that first clip up from our friends at antiwar.com. He says, you know what, I need $105 billion because I need to arm Israel, Ukraine, and Taiwan. Under his presidency, we now have a three-front war. Why are we in this mess? This crazy talk about how about $100 billion and we have to divide it up among our, our, oh, our, our enemies or our friends or what <laughs> not, the, the recipients anyway. So all they needed to do was obey one rule and it wouldn't have happened. If they obey the Constitution, yeah. there's no authority to take money from poor people in this country and give it to rich people in these war zones. So, it, so the thing wouldn't wouldn't have happened, and uh, and yet we still we still do it. And uh, but it's always the process, and this invites the special interests, the competition that goes on that we witness up there. How and, and you you just pointed out a perfect example. You know, then the Ukrainians have to uh, fight for money. For, uh, you you know, uh, with uh, uh, Israel, who's going to get the most? Well, we'll give them. Everybody gets some, you yeah. know. And and maybe maybe this is going to be come to a close close vote. So they might say 105. It's not quite enough, but it's got a 120, and <laughs> I think on. we can satisfy everybody and get this thing passed. Yeah. You know, so and bring peace to the world. Maybe we can get them to sneak a billion in for us. <laughs> <laughs> Nobody would know. But you know, I think you know we talk about sending it to rich people overseas, and that's partly true. But I think McConnell really spilled the beans on this because it's not necessarily that he's saying, "Hey, this money is going to go to our weapons manufacturers. Yeah. It's good for business." <laughs> and of course, you look at who his donors are, and there you go, there you have it. <laughs> so that's how it goes. Uh, yeah, we're talking about Venezuela today, and I'm going to be very honest. I know very little about Venezuela. I know very little about their politics, their government. 
Why is that? Because I am an American. That's not my government. My government is the American government. And when you watch the Liberty Report, our job is to keep our government in check, you know, and and point out when they are violating the Constitution, which they make it very easy for us to do. Now, I'm not just an American. I'm also a member of the Rossini family. You know, in my neighborhood, there are families. When I look down this way, this way, there are families and homes. And, and, and if you go a few doors down, I don't even know their names. And I don't know what goes on in their household. I don't know if the father is a dictator or if the mother is the, the matriarch and tells everybody what to do. I don't know if they sit around a dinner table and have a democracy and, and vote on everything that happens in that household. It's not my business to do that. And if I was to go a few doors down, like our government does around the world, and tell them this is how you're going to live, they would kick me out. And that's what other countries do to our government. They kick us out. And I would do the same if another family came and tried to tell our family how to live. You know, it's not everything is supposed to be your business or my business. We have to handle what has been given to us, what is in front of us to handle. But that is a very hard thing, especially for America, especially after a 100 years. You think that the whole world is your oyster that you have to go and fix according to how you think it should be fixed. And it's a grand delusion. It does not work. It has bankrupted us. It has caused immeasurable suffering around the world, including our standard of living going down the drain. So enough is enough. We have to take care of what is in front of us, what is actually in our power to control and we would be in a much, much better America. Don, Chris's thing, I, I don't think there is a single country that the United States has either invaded or used a combination of hard and soft power, or only soft power, to push into the world of our version of democracy where it's ever worked out. I think there's countries that have similar systems to ours, and it's worked out for them, and they're primarily countries that are Western culture, and they've decided that's what they wanted for themselves. And maybe we even played some role in helping them establish that, but it's what the people that lived there wanted. Any other place we've gone to where we've decided this is the way you need to run things, we fucked it up. I mean, that's the whole Middle East, most of Africa, etc., agnosium. You want to know where we did that and it did not work out well and we used one of our allies to help get it done? The Gaza Strip. Yeah. See, this is what people don't know about Gaza. There hadn't been an Israeli boot in Gaza other than as a response to attacks since 2004 or six. I don't remember exactly which one it is. But the, 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 the uh, Palestinians have 100% complete control of the Gaza Strip and half. And we decided that they needed to have a democratically elected government, and so we shoved that up their ass. And the Israelis are the ones who backed Hamas, by the way, I'm just saying. And then they elected Hamas in the democratic elections, and the democratic elections went away. Because Hamas took the power that was given to them and said, we don't need this anymore, we got it. Yay, my democracy. Maybe we should just stop touching things if we've touched them before and fucked them up. If you took your car to a mechanic and he fucked it up, and you you might take it back to him once and go, you look, man, you fucked it up, fix it. But you know what you would do if he fucked it up again? You'd bite the bullet, pay to have somebody else fix it properly, and never use that mechanic ever again. right? And you'd tell that mechanic, you're not a good mechanic. You're a shitty mechanic. You need to go find something else to fucking do. 
Not us. Oh, no. We are the mechanic who won't stop touching things and breaking them. Yeah. The other side of this is I completely agree with the angle that Chris Rossini and Dr. Paul are taking that we want a we want war right now. Joe Biden wants to be a wartime president. It's pretty much the only way that anybody can see saving this election. I'm wondering more and more if you're going to helicopter someone like Gavin Newsom or something like that in to replace Brandon. How you get that done, the longer they wait, the harder it really is to do. How do you get cackles out of the way? It doesn't seem like they have a play other than push Brandon back into the fray again. And so you need to put them in the basement, metaphorically in this case, the, the, the bunker in the White House, I guess, this time. So he can campaign without campaigning again. Because he can't go out and talk to people. Because every time he opens his mouth, people are like, what is wrong with this dude? Okay? So if you start wars, this is what I think. And I do not willy-nilly predict the United States will start a war with. The United States will start a war with, in my opinion, though, like a 90 to 95% chance Iran. And they will use this as a position to do it. We will probably not put boots on the ground. We're going to have a standoff war with Iran. It will give us the justification to basically blow the fuck out of anything that we don't like in the in in the in the uh, in the, the Straits, right, uh, in the Red Sea, because Iran will immediately say, "Well, we're going to choke off oil if you're going to do this," and we'll say, "Okay, so we're going to blow your shit up." And they probably have convinced senile Brandon and his minders. I'm talking about the military-industrial complex here. We can totally fuck up Iran without going in and show Israel the way they should be doing it with Gaza. Some stupid shit like that. And then they got to figure out how to prolong this war. So don't actually be surprised if we don't actually do this until as late as possible. Now, if we get to a point where it looks like Israel has a resolution in Gaza, like we're going to stop, then we got to act... But you notice how the Israelis came right out from the get-go, almost like somebody told them to, and said, this is going to be long and drawn out. This is going to take a long time. Because what Brandon's going to want is the war raging, at least on your television set, as we head into the election, and as we head into the campaign season, as we head into the debates. But I believe emphatically the United States is going to provoke and figure out how to start a war with Iran. It's one of the few countries left that under the Bush doctrine we're supposed to have a war with. We're supposed to have Afghanistan, Libya, Iraq, all right, a few other African countries. Some of them we didn't really have wars, but we got we had military action in them, okay? And the whole plan of the Bush administration is we go back and we never leave. And some of the people haven't got the memo that that didn't work out. So Brandon's restarting that whole Bush doctrine with the Middle East. After completely fucking up the withdrawal from Afghanistan, you can trust him to invade another country. I'm back to Chris Rossini. Why can't we leave shit alone? Let's go on to something a little bit different here and talk about Narcan, what it is, and why some people are being asked to carry it, whether they think they need it or not, to help others. Hi, Joe Alton, MD here, also known as Dr. Bones of the survival website doomandbloom.net, co-author of the Book Excellence Award-winning fourth edition of the Survival Medicine Handbook and designer of quality medical kits at store.doomandbloom.net. It appears that the fentanyl epidemic has gotten so bad in New York City that the authorities have requested all residents carry naloxone, brand name Narcan, to treat overdose victims in the street. 
Naloxone is an opioid antagonist that can reverse the life-threatening effects of overdoses. The city health department is offering residents training on how to use the drug, which is now over-the-counter. One health official opined that Narcan should be in everyone's first aid kit and even available at subway stations and other public venues. The catalyst for what would once have been considered a pretty outlandish request was the death of a two-year-old boy who died after exposure to fentanyl. That's not all. New York City has experienced a 12% jump in overdose deaths since the previous year, and that's over 3,000 people who died in 2022. Why is this happening? Well, failure to control our southern border has led to the importation of a whole slew of dangerous drugs like heroin, fentanyl, and more by drug cartels. It's said the drug cartels are now the fifth largest employer in Mexico. If you're wondering who's controlling the border, it's not the Mexican government, and it's certainly not us. It's them. Opioids are so deadly because of their tendency to interrupt your ability to breathe, especially when taken in high doses or in combination with other recreational drugs. The family medic should recognize the signs and symptoms of someone who's overdosing. Expect to see shallow, slow breathing, a slow pulse, pale and cold skin, blue lips or fingernails, and altered mental status. Now, unlike the dilated pupils seen with some drugs, opioids cause pupils to be pinpoint in appearance. If you encounter somebody who's unconscious, they need Narcan immediately. Fortunately, the drug can return normal breathing within two to three minutes in many cases. The Food and Drug Administration has specifically approved the use of Narcan as an over-the-counter nasal spray, and it's effective when given correctly. Narcan nasal spray usually comes in a package with two doses. If the first dose is ineffective, you can give a second dose without worrying about any additional side effects. Even if you're not sure they used opioids, give them Narcan Anyway, it doesn't cause harm and it's safe to take even when you don't have opioids in your system. It's best to give Narcan as soon as possible, though. The longer you wait, the more likely it might be too late for the victim. Someone who begins breathing again after receiving Narcan can relapse after 30 to 90 minutes if they have very high amounts of opioids in their system. Because of this, it's important you call emergency services and stay near the person until help arrives to make sure they don't deteriorate. So here's how to administer Narcan. You lay the person flat on their back, making sure their mouth is clear and the airway is open. You open the outer package and peel back the inner packaging of the nasal spray itself. It comes in a plunger type device. Hold the spray with your thumb at the bottom of the plunger and your pointer and middle fingers on either side of the nozzle. Tilt the person's head back and support the back of the neck. Then insert the nozzle into a nostril. Your index and middle fingers should touch the bottom of the nose. Then firmly press the plunger to deliver the dose into the person's nose. Remove the device once it's delivered. There's only one dose per spray device, so don't press the plunger until you are ready to deliver the drug. In extreme cases, you may still need to support their breathing with CPR techniques after the first dose is given. If the person starts breathing again and becomes responsive in short order, the Narcan worked. You can rotate them onto their side in the CPR recovery position and monitor them, but be aware they may be agitated and combative when they first wake, may need some space. If in two or three minutes the person is still unresponsive or not breathing, or if breathing difficulty returns, administer the second dose of Narcan. Remember, there are two doses in each pack. You should be able to find Narcan at your local pharmacy. It might be even available for free. Each state's insurance plan has their own rules, but one thing is sure, it'll be an over-the-counter drug. You do not need a prescription. Unless things change for the better on the border, you should expect the opioid epidemic to continue unabated. There's apparently no interest in the current administration to solve our border crisis, leaving cities like New York to beg its citizens to save overdose victims on their own. That still means 100,000 or more Americans are going to die every year for the foreseeable future. 
It seems strange to say it, but maybe it isn't such a bad idea to have some Narcan around in these troubled times. Would you carry it? This is Joel and MD, that old Dr. Bones, wishing you the best of health in good times or bad. Thanks for listening. Hey, learn more about off-grid medical topics in the award-winning fourth edition of the Survival Medicine Handbook. Get your family medically prepared with quality kits and individual supplies from our entire line at store.doomandbloom.net. You'll be glad you did. So in my intro, I said there were some comments made on social media about this issue that makes me want to go punch people in the head. You might wonder what that is. Well, when this started being uh, a thing, and certain mayors and such asked the average citizen, hey, get some of this and carry it, and even some instances say, we'll give it to you if you ask for it for free. It isn't that I think everybody's obligated to do it. It was the way people were declining doing it that bothered me. Basically, screw drug addicts, F those people, let them die. Why am I supposed to be responsible for these people? And you heard Bones talk about how things can happen that ain't that the person is a dopehead. First of all, let me say something here, though. Dopehead or not, I value human life. If there's a human being in front of me that's about to die, unless I know there's some kind of mass murderer or something, or possibly a high-level bureaucrat, I'm going to save their life. I promise you, I would save the life of a drugged-out, homeless person if, if he was sitting there dying, and next to him was Anthony Fauci sitting there dying. They've both been, against their will maybe, given a drug. And I had one dose of Narcan. Guess whose life I'm saving? So I'll save mostly anybody's life, no matter how they ended up where they are. If I had one dose and Fauci was there, I, I might give, I don't know, him, maybe not. I, I, I'll put him up there with Himmler. Uh, and what's his name? The the doctor in Nazi Germany. Um, Mangala. That, 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 Fauci's a modern Mangala. He can die. Pretty much everybody else, you know, and, and most people, I would save their life. So hey, I, I don't even like this idea of, like, screw dope heads or whatever. But this attitude that I would say about half of the people in this country have of just anybody who's not exactly like me, screw them, is why we are in such a precarious position right now. You see, those people that say that, they're the ones that you think you're going to be able to count on when the shit hits the fan, and you're not. And I think that personally, people with that attitude, you need if you have them in your life, you need to know who they are before you need to rely on somebody because they're not the one you need to rely on. And you might be like, well, they would help me, but they don't have the ability to help you because they're too stupid to realize here's a solution to something that could go wrong. Do you know how many people have died from, like, let's say, fentanyl overdoses that didn't think they were buying fentanyl? Well, they thought they were buying drugs. Well, maybe. In some instances, there's been people that have been killed with fentanyl overdoses that thought they were buying prescription medications to save money from online pharmacies. It's not a huge thing, but it's a thing. It's happened. Or some kid gets into something they weren't supposed to get because the people that use drugs are not generally responsible. Or somebody thought they bought X percentage and bought Y percentage and didn't know it. And there's someone you loved and cared about. But it, you couldn't be bothered. I think if there is a life-saving substance that's readily available and you call yourself a prepper, maybe you should have some of that. Because you have no idea when you're ever going to need it. And what I think about is one of these assholes, and they are asshole people online, saying this stupid shit. And their kid 
their little kid figures out how to get in their medicine cabinet and get some of mommy's special pills from the doctor, they're completely legal, but eats eight of them, and their kid dies because of their arrogant effing bullshit. All right, I've said what I have to say. Let's move on to something totally different, expanding a solar power system with Sean Mills. Hey, everybody, it's Sean Mills with the Hack My Homestead podcast. And today I've got an expert panel question from Jeffrey. Jeffrey says, I have a six-panel, 240-watt solar array with battery backup. Is it enough to? Pa- it is enough to power our freezer and a little more. I am considering getting additional panels. The 240-watt are not the latest, but are less expensive. Should I go for the 240-watt panels or larger wattage? Also, would it be better to tie into the current system or have a separate battery bank with a charge controller and inverter? Well, you didn't tell me how big your battery bank is, but assuming that you have enough overhead capacity to add solar panels, then I don't think the wattage really matters. So um, I would say if you have the room to go with cheaper panels because the biggest difference between the cheaper per watt lower wattage panels and the newer more efficient panels is that per square foot of panel space they're going to generate less than the newer panels so it's not really a problem uh, if you have the space now the other part of that is if you're building a ground mount for this if you're not mounting it onto an existing structure but you're going to be you know, building a ground mount, uh, there is a point where the extra space results in additional cost for the ground mount. So, for example, a 240-watt 60-cell solar panel is generally about, you know, a little over three feet by a little over five feet, whereas a 550-watt bifacial panel is going to be just a little bit wider and about a foot taller. So, but as you can tell, you know, it's going to generate more than double uh, the wattage. Now, you're also going to pay probably more than double per watt to buy those panels. So, I'm perfectly fine with used secondary market or grade B, um, you know, panels uh, that you can get cheaply. You know, we've gotten panels around here before for less than 10 cents a watt. And you just have to know going in, hey, I'm going to need more panels to generate, you know, more power, right? Um, a lot of people think of systems in the size of, or in terms of how many panels do I need rather than how many watts of, um, you know, nameplate generation capacity do I need, okay? Um, now, I will say that if you have a big enough battery bank, I would put these panels on a separate dedicated charge controller and I would tie them right into the same battery bank. Um, I do like the idea of either having a secondary inverter or even potentially a backup inverter. But the thing to remember about inverters is that you match the inverter to your load. All right. So what you're running off of the system determines what size inverter you need. And so if you're not going to be running anything else, but maybe you're just going to be running those systems for longer, then you don't don't even really need another inverter. Um, But I do like the idea of adding charge controllers when you add an additional uh, panel. But you can tie multiple charge controllers to the same battery bank, okay, 
Uh, I like doing that with a bus bar. So I will have a bus bar with, you know, somewhere between four and 12 lugs on it. And I will tie my charge controllers to the bus bar and the inverter to the bus bar. And then I'll just have one thick cable going from the bus bar to the battery bank. That way, if I'm pumping high amperage in from both of those charge controllers, that I've got enough wire size uh, to handle that. So uh, good luck with your install. It sounds like you're thinking about things the right way. And uh, it's always good to start with a smaller system like this and just expand as you can. So you guys keep getting the questions sent in to Jack, and I'll keep getting them answered. Thanks. All right, next up, we're going to hear from Dr. Ken Berry. We ain't heard from Dr. Ken in a while. He finally uh, shook the piper, piker tree hard enough, and four or five segments came in from Ken. He also asked to be on the show. I told him, fill out the that gone form, and we'll get you on the show, bro. Uh, but this one is a question about the allocation of beef when you have a big family and you're fixing to buy a whole cow or a half a cow. How do you figure out how long it's going to last, et cetera? Ken, what do you think on this? Hello, all my TSP fans and friends. This is Dr. Ken Berry answering a question today from David. David says, on a carnivore diet, what would be the proper daily or weekly intake? I'm considering switching myself and my family to a carnivore diet, and I'm looking at the logistics of what would be required. My family consists of myself, my wife, a daughter, and four growing boys. Nice family. Would I multiply 2,500 calories by five and figure out how long that would last? I don't subscribe to the USDA meal plans, but if I were to purchase a whole or a half cow, how long would that last? Am I looking at a couple of weeks or a couple of months? I understand there are a lot of variables, and that would uh, there would be other things consumed besides just beef. This is a great question. A lot of people, uh, I'm, first of all, let me applaud you and thank you for uh, buying a half beef or a whole beef from a local rancher. That's absolutely one of the key steps into how we're going to change the world and get everyone eating real meat again. So thank you for that. Now, I don't care about or count calories. Most of you guys know that. But in a situation like this, I think that's a rational way to just say, okay, 2,500 calories a day times five, and then figure out how, how long that would last. And, and that way you could kind of guesstimate because the, the calories are an unknowable number. You don't know how many, how many calories are actually in any food. And you also don't know actually how many calories you need on any given day. But just using it as a ballpark figure like this, I think might be useful. To just figure up, or do I need to buy a whole cow or a half cow? And my answer to you would be, if you've got the, the freezer space, buy the whole cow. Why not? Um, for a family of, what did you say, six? I mean, a half cow is not going to last a great long time. So I'd get the whole cow if you've got the freezer space, and you can afford it, of course. Um, this is one of the many ways that we bump up against our modern mindset with a question like this, because you know that, that animals in the wild, they don't do this kind of math. They don't have to. They just follow the herd. And when they're hungry, they eat. And when they're full, they quit eating. And that's what I want all of us doing. But logistically, you've got to, you've got to make calculations like this sometimes. And so I think this would be a good use of the 2,500 calorie uh, a day thing, just as a rough guesstimate of how much beef I should buy. But in my opinion, the question of how much beef you should buy is only acted on by two variables. Number one, your wallet. Number two, your freezer space. 
buy as much beef as you can afford because you never know what's going to happen. Hope this answer helps. This is Dr. Barry. Talk to you guys next time. So I agree and I disagree. And I'm going to throw in a healthy side of it depends here because here's some things to think about when you're buying a half beef, a whole beef, quarter beef, doesn't matter. Number one, that there is not a unit that is a whole beef that is consistent. And this is what I mean. So I might buy, let's say, a half beef from the guy down the road, and I'll split it with another one of his customers, and it'll go to the processor. And the pro- when, I, when it goes to the processor, technically I and the other gentleman who is splitting it with me already own it. We've already um, taken ownership of it, and uh, the supplier, or the, the farmer that raised it, has simply provided transportation to, for it, it to the processor on our behalf. We, and that keeps it legal. And then I'm going to pay him a set fee out of the gate, kind of like a deposit. We're going to refer to it as a transportation fee, again, to keep everything legal, a little status jujitsu. And I'm getting to why this matters with your, your budget allocation here. And then it will get to the processor who will slaughter it and hang it and weigh it. And then I will pay him the total cost will actually be based on the hanging weight that's what I'm actually paying for. What is the hanging weight of the animal? Okay, divided by two, because half of it's going to one party, half of it's going to the other. Uh, once that happens, they'll then you know break the animal down to halves and they'll they'll hang it for a, a certain number of days to age before they process it. The guy that owns it will call me and say, "How do you want this processed, Mr. Spearco? Do you want us to break the flat iron, iron steaks out of the shoulder clod? Do you want the the Denver steaks taken out, or do you want chuck roast? How do you want this done? What do you want done with all the extra? Do you want it all as ground beef, or do you want some portion of your ground as chili ground, where it's more coarse? And I'll tell them what to do. Now, the reason I even tell you all that is one, so you know how to handle it, but two, because hanging weight. And what I'm saying is. It is completely possible that you and I each buy a beef from the same producer and you get 100 pounds of meat more than me or you get 50 pounds of meat more than me or you get 50 pounds less than me. You don't really know when you buy a whole beef how much meat you're going to get because cows don't all grow to the same size. So you could get a really big animal or a somewhat smaller animal. And so that's going to vary. And I think that you need to think more about allocating the product based on servings that people actually eat in your home. In other words, how big of a steak does your youngest kid eat? It's probably a smaller number than the steak that your oldest kid eats. It's probably a smaller, probably, not necessarily. You've got teenagers, they eat everything. But it's probably smaller than what moms eats, and moms is probably less than what you So you have to start kind of figuring that out. And you're probably not going to know until you actually, because it sounds like you're also making this change to carnivore or carnivore ketivore, something like that, as you go forward. The other thing I'll say is, remember, there's a lot of calories in fat, and incorporating the fat, if you're buying a cow, you're probably going to buy grass-fed, and you're buying top-end delicious fat. And especially if you look at that fat, it has a nice yellow, almost a butter-like color to it, then you know you're dealing with a grass-fed producer who really knows what they're doing, and they're making sure that that animal gets the right type of grass 
They're probably pooping nice. That's actually a thing. You don't want a schmear, and you don't want, you know, a little clump. You want a pumpkin pie is what they say, right? Pumpkin pie, cow droppings mean that cow's getting the right protein mix in their grass. They're going to produce beautiful fat. And so think about how you can do things like the fat you trim, render that to tallow, and put it back into your meals. The last thing I'll add is you are going to go through a whole beef a hell of a lot faster than another family who would buy whole beef once a year because they're sitting down every day and they're eating some beef, but they're eating some potatoes and they're eating some green beans and stuff like that. Next, how much other protein are you going to involve in your diet? Do you plan to eat beef every day? Because how long it's going to last is going to be directly proportionate to that. So if one meal a week is going to be fish, I don't know, maybe you're Catholic, right? Then, then that's going to be one less meal a week that you're going to be pulling from that beef. Are you going to be a one meal a day family? Probably not with kids and all. A two meal a day, a three meal a day, how, are you going to have beef for breakfast? Right. So you have to start looking at it that way. And what I would suggest is, I agree with Ken, if you have a freezing space, get a whole cow. Think, you know, learn a little bit about how a cow gets cut up and parted out and some of the newer cuts of beef and all because it gives you an opportunity to get that stuff like flat iron steaks, like Denver steaks, like chuck eyes, etc. And when you get it, inventory it as you put it into your freezer and start making some meal plans based on portion size. Fuck the calories, bluntly. And then incorporate into that, well, are we going to eat chicken once a week or every other week or something? What else? Are you going to have some pork in your diet, et cetera? Like, we all have to make room for bacon, right? You don't have to make room for jello, but you got to make room for bacon. And, and that will start to ferret it out. So I think you're going to have to actually just go in and do it. And then I'm going to tell you something that people do not realize when they start buying half or whole beefs. The amount of grind you get is going to be way more than you think that it is way more than you think that it is. So I would talk to your processor about that, and I would say, listen, any of it that really would make decent stew meat, don't grind it. Make it stew meat in one-pound packs because there's a lot you can do with stew meat. And you can always grind stew meat, but you can't put grind back into stew. And then the other thing is even with that, you're still going to end up with, the last time I got a half beef, I ended up with, I think, 45 pounds of ground and 15 pounds of chili ground, maybe 20 pounds of chili ground, somewhere in the neighborhood of 60, 65 pounds from a half a cow. So start figuring out things to do with grind other than just make burgers because you're going to have plenty of it. And then always remember you can always use the techniques we've talked about with cutting your own whole primals to supplement the beef that you're buying from a local producer and maybe time it out a little bit better. Just some thoughts on that. I think that answer was actually longer than Ken's, but I think the two of them together give you a full picture of what you're dealing with. And I agree. Get on it. Uh, buying local beef is a great way to go. I'd rather you buy local beef, okay, from a local producer that's grain-fed at the end than grass-fed beef from halfway around the world. You're still doing a better thing overall. I, I honestly believe that. I don't actually believe that grain-fed beef is, is that bad. From a dietary standpoint. It's not as good as grass. Let me kind of finish that with it so that it makes sense to you. I don't like the way the animals are treated in that process. But a lot of times with local producers, what they're doing is they're sending the animal to something we might call a CAFO. A place to be finished for four to six weeks. 
the smaller local locations, though, generally are not something like we see in the commercial space. Where it's, I've been out to Lubbock, and you see some of the CAFOs out there, and there's just it looks like an ocean of cattle. There's cattle to the horizon, and they're standing in their own shit. Where um, I've seen some a local place around here, locals are pretty far away in Texas. You know, it could be 50 miles, and it's local, um, and it looks like a dairy operation. These animals are not abused, and, and I would buy an animal out of that system if I didn't have another choice. Well, with that, let's go ahead and hear from Professor C.J. Kilmer about the formation of the Federal Reserve from the perspective of a history professor. Howdy, this is C.J. Kilmer from the Dangerous History Podcast, and I'm responding to a question from a listener, I believe, named Mike who just asked if I could talk a bit about the Federal Reserve. And I'm happy to do that, but before I do, I'll just say the Federal Reserve, including its origin and the backstory and context of its creation and all the nitty-gritty details of who was really behind it, what they're really up to, that sort of thing, is a giant topic on which I could easily do like 15, 20 hours of coverage on the Dangerous History Podcast. And honestly, I probably will at some point if I keep the show going long enough. On a long enough time horizon, all topics will eventually be covered on the DHP. But the short version is that, like most or perhaps all of the big reforms and agencies and so forth that were set up during the heyday of progressivism version 1.0, as I call it, in the early 20th century United States, the Federal Reserve was a scam. It was sold to the American people and even some honest, populist-minded politicians as a way to rein in Wall Street and the big bankers and all that sort of stuff. And in reality, it was designed and pushed for and served the interests of the big bankers themselves, including but not limited to people like J.P. Morgan and all of his business partners the Harriman family, the Rockefellers, the Kuhn Loeb and Company, banking firm, the Warburgs, and so on. The Federal Reserve System was created in order to cartelize the financial sector of the United States economy and to coordinate the inflationary practices of the major financial firms and to bail out politically connected financial firms whenever that is necessary. But really, the Federal Reserve should be seen as a symbiotic public-private partnership because, of course, it primarily serves the interests of the financial elite, particularly the biggest Wall Street banks, but it also serves the interests of the government, and that's why the government was willing and eager to give it power and to go into partnership with Wall Street. So what the government gets is that the Federal Reserve helps it in various ways to accumulate and finance far more government debt than would be the case in the absence of a central bank and in the presence of a more hard money system than what we have. So particularly by holding interest rates artificially low, the Federal Reserve helps to enable massive government deficits and debts and does so at the expense of sort of the average American who has to deal with the costs of inflation and also the Federal Reserve's easy money policies that it tends to favor most of the time throughout its existence 
also, and here I agree with the so-called Austrian school of economics, is also the root of the so-called business cycle. Because when the Federal Reserve makes money and credit artificially cheap, this tends to lead to bubbles in various sectors of the economy that are affected by this. And for a while, there's a boom, but ultimately, of course, it turns into a bust, into a crash. So just a little bit on the history of the origin of the Federal Reserve as an institution, though some ideas in conspiring go back many years, really the thing started to crystallize in 1910 at a secret meeting at Jekyll Island, Georgia, which was then a private resort where many of America's richest and most powerful plutocrats had winter homes at the time, including J.P. Morgan. And J.P. Morgan himself was a key player behind organizing the meeting, though he did not attend personally. But this was a very secretive meeting where representatives from the major financial institutions of the U.S. at the time met. They traveled under assumed names in a secret rail car and ultimately designed what would become, with a few modifications along the way over the next few years, the Federal Reserve Act. The initial version of the Federal Reserve Act came from a very powerful Rhode Island senator of the time named Nelson Aldrich, a longtime Republican senator from Rhode Island. And at this time, there were two major factions in American business and increasingly spilling over into politics. And on the one side, you had the House of Morgan, J.P. Morgan and all of his partners and businesses and things that he owned. And on the other side, you had an alliance of the Rockefellers, the Harriman family, and the Kuhn Loeb financial interests. But one of the things they agreed on was they both wanted a new central bank, what would become the Federal Reserve. Now, they disagreed on some of the details of its structure, and of course they disagreed on who should be running it. But they both agreed that it would be desirable for their interests to have a new national bank. However, in 1912, Woodrow Wilson was elected president, and the Democrats took over, if memory serves, majorities in both houses of Congress. And so as a result, the Aldrich bill, as it stood, was not passed. Instead, it was modified. A few concessions were made to some key Democratic politicians' wishes, and it got new Democratic Party sponsors in the Congress, and it was passed near the end of 1913 as the Federal Reserve Act. And it was happily signed into law by President Woodrow Wilson. And if you want a bit more on just the details of the passage of the act and how it was modified and things, you can check out my Dangerous History podcast episode 222, which is part eight of my still ongoing series, Dissecting the Life and Career and Horrible Legacy of Woodrow Wilson in minute detail. And I'll include a link when I email this segment to Jack. I'll include a link to that episode in case anybody wants to check it out. And the rest, as they say, is history. Since the Federal Reserve was created, the U.S. dollar has lost something like 99% of its buying power, depending on how you measure it. It has enabled far more frequent and far longer wars. It has facilitated the U.S. government accumulating just astronomical amounts of debt. And it has created boom-bust cycles over and over and over again in the American economy. So there you go. The Federal Reserve, designed by and for the financial and political elites to benefit them at the expense of the vast majority of average people 
Anyway, with that, let's go on. Let's now talk about CIDR with Ben Falk. Hey, Jack and all. Ben Falk, Whole Systems Design. Question about making hard cider and apple cider. It's funny, I just got this email from Jack when I uh, stepped in from my mead meadery cider fermentary basement. Like, literally last hour, I've been in there bottling our first batch of cider which is made at the end of august which is very early for here we have there's tens of thousands of pounds of apples here right in my neighborhood uh huge apple year even though we had 20 degrees in may at full blossom quite amazing incredibly resilient fruit um when we were in the middle of apple kingdom here in northern new england basically northern half of vermont northern half of new hampshire some of maine some of new hampshire is is as good as it gets for apples, maybe as good as in Kazakhstan, um, where they're from. So, yeah, as far as making, um, you know, hard cider, that's what we do with most of it. I mean, I gorge and eating them, but I'm only going to eat so many. Um, so we just do the standard method, um, originally from probably sourced from Sander Katz's Wild Fermentation book. It's how we make mead too. Basically, just Put your press your apple juice. We use a, uh, a uh, our scratter. Our grinder is a insincorator. Works great. You spend like two hundred bucks one time on like a three quarter horsepower, high quality but not industrial quality. Although that'd be nice. Um, you know, garbage disposal they call them. I guess for sinks, you know, insincorators. Make a little pan for those. You brought we brought axe up the apples in a little big wooden pan first. So they're at least halved or quartered before they get jammed into the insincorator. We can make easily five to ten gallons in an hour with two people working, um, which is for our scale, home scale. I mean, way more than we can drink or want to drink of hard cider. Um, and we could have a hard cider a night. I put them in 500 milliliter crown cap bottles. But let me get to that. So that's how we grind them. Well, we harvest by shaking the trees, picking up off the ground, use a big nut wizard, whatever you want to do, wash them off lightly, spray them off with water. Let them sit ideally a few weeks to sweat them. Check out the um, new Cider Maker's Handbook. It's pretty daunting. It's a big, it's an incredible book. It's amazing, actually. But that will have the whole process. If you can kind of skim that and get the big picture, start, and then you can spend your whole lifetime getting into it more. That's a good way to go. Um so yeah, you're collecting the apples, you're trying to let them be really ripe ideally. You want like an initial gravity of at least 1.050, get a little hydrometer for eight bucks, um, measure the juice, don't use cultivated apples, use wild apples or you know, nice sharp and bitter cider apples unless you want like a sweet, not great cider. And uh, yeah, then you get that juice, so you scrat it, you grind it, you press it. A lot of options out there. I'd recommend a hydraulic press. And then you put it in a big crock or a carboy with a lot of air at the top so it's not yet to the bottleneck of the carboy. Let it sit for a week or two. You can pitch it commercial yeast like a champagne yeast or a Lalvin 1018 or similar type of cider yeast. You can look all those up online. 
I do a lot of wild yeast unless I feel like it's a funky batch. And if it's, I'll taste it as it's fermenting in the first few weeks. Every few days, ideally, and it tastes like it's going a little weird, a little too funky, too kind of sour feet type of flavor or whatever. I'll pitch a bot yeast, a champagne yeast. I add honey to mine too to just jack it up to like 1.055 or 1.060 if it's a low gravity early season cider, which is low sugar. Then we get it rolling uh, in the active fermentation, bubbling, and then as soon as it starts to slow at all, or even before, after a week or two, you don't, you know, air is the enemy of any meat or, or cider. Add honey water, apple juice water, or just water. So it's up in the neck. So there's only an inch or two of, of airspace. So you have very little air. So it's covered in a blanket of CO2 that's protecting it because it's an anaerobic fermentation. Put your airlock on the top instead of like a clean cloth, which you had rubber banded on top of it first. And then it's going to sit in there for months in that glass carboy. Six and a half gallon carboy, my preferred. I'd go big, as big as I can carry pretty reasonably. And then, um, because if you go with a three gallon batch, like you're, you're the amount of lees, the sediment on the bottom that you get proportionally is a lot more. So you're wasting more of it. So I like five to six and a half gallon carboy. Six and a half gallon carboys are like cheaper than the five gallon carboy for some weird reason. They're amazing. Buy a bunch. And then, um, yeah, so then it's in there for months until it clears, like totally clears. And then you can bottle it then. You can add more honey water, cider water, sugar. I wouldn't recommend regular old sugar. You could That's called bottle conditioning, so you end up with a sparkling cider. That's what we do basically all the time. I don't like a still cider. And you can rack it too a few times in the meantime to get it off the lees, the sediments, that's one method. Some people leave it on the lees. I've had good results both ways. Some people say you get more flavor with that, that natural method of leaving it on the lees and you're only racking it really at bottling. But some people rack it many times to keep jumping off of the lees to clear it out. Lots of ways to go, but that's the general gist. I like to bottle in 500 milliliter crown cap, high pressure bottles. Whatever you do, make it standardized. Swing top bottles are expensive, but it's nice to have like a few of each batch so you can see it. Nice, clear ones. Keep them in the dark. Keep Do all of this between 65. Well, the beginning can be up to 75 for that primary fermentation, but then you want to be eight, you know, really doing your secondary long fermentation for months in the carboy between like 50 to 65. Like 60 is pretty ideal. Many people's basements are a good temp. And, uh, yeah, and then once it's clear, bottle carefully. Don't get any sediment in there. Then let it sit ideally at least another 6 to 12 months. The stronger and more complex the cider, probably the longer it wants to sit. The higher alcohol content, the longer it wants to sit. If it's an early season, like, wine spritzer type of cider, which I like making some of those, you know, like a 4 to 5.5% ABV, I'll, we're drinking those the first winter, um, which is early, but they're, they're good by then. They're, they're finished. They're dry. They're not sweet. They're not like alcoholy, like isopropylene. Um, whereas meads, you know, are going to take at least a year, ideally two, before you're really going to have a good mead. Um, that's the general gist. There's a lot more, but that's a good way to get started. Have fun. It's amazing. That's what, uh, if you want to put up value for the years, put up, you know, ferment fruits, all sorts of fruits and berries, get it in glass just gets better over time. Well, so it was 
great information. And, and, and Ben said when he sent me this, this was hard-won information that he put into this. So uh, definitely what you want to use. If you're fortunate to live in a place where it's easy to grow apples, I'm so envious of Vermont and New Hampshire and all of it. You guys can just grow shit like crazy up there. Apples here have not worked out for me. I've gotten a few, and none of them have been great. Certainly not enough to make cider. But my addition to this one is just a, uh, a, a resounding agreement with the recommendation on the garbage disposal, and not necessarily to use it as uh, for grinding up apples to make cider. You can. It works really good. Do you know what I'm going to say? In your sink. I own the exact same garbage disposal. You guys know me. I research shit before I buy it. And when our old garbage disposal, like eight years ago, shit the bed, I researched and found the damn... I buy things once if I can. And that's the exact garbage disposal that's in my personal sink. So if you need a new garbage disposal, check out the Insinkinator. Next up, what about rusty knives? What can we do about them? And should we, Patrick Horman? This is Patrick with MT Knives coming to you today with today's expert counsel segment of the week. Today's question comes from Patrick. He says, what is the best way to get rust spots off a World War II era blade? I inherited a fixed blade knife from my grandfather and is supposedly from when he was in the Navy during World War II. Its sheath is leather. I've just been wiping the rust off, but would like to take better care of it so I can pass it down to my son and teach him how to properly take care of it. Is there a product or way to clean it that is best? Thanks, Patrick B. Well, thanks for the question, Patrick. And um, as far as something, you know, like historically um, that you might want to preserve value on, I'm not sure about what cleaning method is best. But what I can tell you is what ways that I've tried in the past and ways that work that I seem work well. So, of course, there's always products out there for cleaning off rust and um, things like that, like CLR or uh, EvapoRust. There's another one that uh, is pretty good, too, and I can't think of the name of it. But... Pretty much, um, I don't use any of those products that are, I have used the VapoRust and it worked okay. Um, some people suggest using like white vinegar. It works all right. Um, but as for what I use, typically my go-to is a product called Flitz. F-L, uh, let's see, what is it? F-L-I-T-Z, something like that. Um, it's a, it's a polishing compound and it will get away the rust. It's got a slight abrasive to it. So it kind of really scrubs the rust away and kind of polishes at the same time. I really like how that product works. How, however, when you use that, uh, you want to be sure and get it clean and then like clean all that compound off of it when you're done and then apply some oil right away. I've also used a product called Barkeeper's Friend. It's something that you can get in the cleaning aisle, much like Comet. But the idea is something with a slight abrasive that's not going to scratch the steel, but yet will clean the rust off. So Flitz is my go-to when I'm cleaning a knife. And then um, I like to use a good 
A lot of times I like to use a food safe oil, like some Japanese blade oil, uh, but any type of oil that's going to help keep it from rusting in the future. As far as the leather sheath goes, leather sheaths are nice, uh, but you do not want to store knives in leather long term. So the leather is going to hold moisture and it's going to cause the knife to rust and, and hardware on the knife to corrode. So it's always best to keep a knife stored out of the sheath uh, in some place that is climate controlled and, you know, hopefully low humidity. So if you uh, store your knife like that, it should last for generations to come. So be sure and uh, send me some pictures of your knife before and after cleaning and uh, I'd like to see it. So thanks again for your question. I hope it helped. And if there's anybody else that's got any questions out there for me, feel free to send them. This has been Patrick with MT Knives. Thanks. Have a good week. So here's my thoughts on this. If you haven't already cleaned this knife, if it still has patina on it, you should probably do nothing except thin coat of oil and leave it alone if it is truly holding any collector value. If you've already cleaned it, and you've removed patina from it and what have you, you have probably already destroyed any collector value. There are certain things that are collectibles and have, you know, we call it in coins numismatic value, that should never be cleaned, okay, ever, ever. And anybody sophisticated in the space of collectibles even if you try to restore the patina, will recognize that it has been cleaned, and the patina, the markings, etc., are not original. Thad, who's a good friend of mine, who's usually at workshops and will be here this year, he serves in the military, United States Army, he's a first sergeant. He has a World War I era, 1911, in the holster. It looks pretty bad. He keeps it oiled, it won't get any worse, but he'll never clean it because he understands what I just said. Coins should not be cleaned. Collectible knives should not be cleaned. Now, here's the thing. A lot of these knives that are from these time frames, they're not very collectible and they may never well be. And if that's the case and you just want it as a knife for yourself, then knock yourself out. But I'm just going to say, if you have something collectible and you haven't cleaned it, and I'm not talking about wiping it off with a rag or something. I'm talking about using any kind of solvent on it, using steel wool on it, using anything like that. Don't. Don't. Don't do it. Don't do it. Don't do it. Don't do it. Now, there are things that actually benefit from professional restoration. I'm just going to say, find the answer to that. Do I? Do I not? Do I do professional restoration? etc. before you mess with something that may have significant uh, value based on its historical significance. Alright, next up let's talk about money with John Pugliano and the investing market as it sits right now and why John and I are both mostly out of the market right now. 
Hello, TSP. Well, hey, I want to give you a quick market update and kind of sum together all the many variations of questions I've been receiving over the past couple of weeks. And, you know, they're the standard questions about where should I park some money that I'm saving for my house until I, you know, find the right real estate property that I want or the questions about where should my young child put some money that they've earned for long-term growth. Or those of you that have money sitting in a 401k from a former employer and you're looking, you know, where to roll that over. Listen, I I know at the risk of sounding like a broken record, because I've been saying this for almost a year now, but 90% of my own personal money is sitting in money market funds. I can't ever remember a time in my nearly 40 years of investing when I've been marking time treading water with this much money just simply sitting out of the market. The reason I haven't been investing like I normally would isn't that I'm worried about an economic collapse or the U.S. dollar losing its reserve currency status or any of the gloom and doom, apocalyptic nightmare scenarios that are always perpetrated within our prepper community. It's none of those reasons. It's just that we are in the aftermath of coming through the greatest sugar high that any global economy has ever seen because of all the stimulus that was pumped into the global markets during the pandemic. And when you combine that with the fact that for the last 15 years, the Federal Reserve and all the central banks have artificially held interest rates far below their natural level, well, all that fiscal and monetary meddling has created the largest malfunction of what would normally be a price discovery mechanism that markets use to assess assets. And I'm talking about all assets, bonds, stocks, crypto, real estate, alternative investments. They're all in the same boat. For the last 15 years, the U.S. and the global economies have been juiced on easy, free money. And now we're seeing the currents reversing. Interest rates are staying higher and longer with the 10-year Treasury approaching 5% we may be seeing a reemergence of what was called the bond vigilantes from the early 1980s, back when Paul Volcker changed the trajectory of economic history by breaking the back of inflation and taking interest rates to the highest level that ever been seen in history. Well, you know, we've just come off the inverse of that over the past 40 years, where interest rates had been declining from those levels, and we correspondingly hit negative interest rates or near zero interest rates, which were the lowest rates in all time history. And I'm talking all time recorded history. People started to get used to that and thinking it was normal. Well, it's not normal. It can't be maintained forever. And the question with all the uncertainty we're going through right now is where will the level stabilize? Bonds have lost money for the past three years. They will continue to lose money until interest rates stop going up. The corollary to that is that even though the stock market has done relatively well and is showing a great degree of resilience and durability, the S&P 500 is still down more than 10% from its post-pandemic peak, and other markets like the small caps are down significantly more than that. So while we're not yet in a full-blown recession in terms of the stock market and We may not see a full-blown recessionary impact on the stock market simply because they can financially engineer themselves out of this. I, I think it's unlikely, but we just don't know. The bottom line, though, is that when you look at geopolitical risk, they keep getting worse. 
If you follow my podcast or my blog post, you know that I've been pointing out the extreme weakness that we're seeing in small caps. And it's not just limited to that sector of the market. If you look at the recent IPOs that have launched in the past couple months, they're an absolute disaster. In fact, I can't ever remember high-level IPOs performing this poorly. We're talking companies like Arm, which is a semiconductor company. They had an IPO that was supposed to take advantage of all the hype and hysteria around artificial intelligence. And then just recently, Instacart, which is an online grocery retailer, and Birkenstocks have had IPOs that was designed to take advantage of all the strength and consumer spending. Well, these three IPOs, and Arm and Instacart in particular, you know, Birkenstock's only been out for about a week, so it's only had a moderate downward movement because it's so new. But if you look at Arm and Instacart in particular, Arm is down 25% from the initial high that it achieved coming out of the IPO, and Instacart is down a whopping 42% from the IPO hysteria. And this is not singling out one or two insignificant IPOs. I'm putting a spotlight on the two largest, most significant IPOs of the past 12 months, and they're in total, absolute failure. Now, I want to reiterate here, I'm not predicting gloom and doom. I'm just spelling out the facts that I'm concerned about the underlying fundamentals of not only the stock market, but the global economy. And until I see some more clarity emerge, I'm going to remain with my money safely parked in money market funds, which are immune from both stock market declines as well as bond declines. And when will I change my mind? Well, I have no idea, but if you follow me at Investable Wealth and the Wealthsteading Podcast, you'll find out. Until then, this is John Pugliano wishing you the very best returns. John's even more optimistic than me, as dark as all that sounds. I, I, if you guys that have been around a long time remember, back in 2008, I said, here it comes. Get out of the market. Get out of the way. And I keep saying, John and I are both not in the market heavily right now. We're mostly in cash. I'm not screaming, get out, get out, get out, because I'm not saying this is imminent. I'm just saying, like, you do with that information what you will, and you make decisions about your positions on your own. But we are, the boat is tied up to the dock right now. We are waiting for the storm to pass. But in 08, when I said that was going to happen, I said it's not the end of the world. Look, people are going to say it is. There will be a huge false recovery. The band will start up, pa 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 pa, and we will go on like everything is super. And the next big one will be bloody and gory and awful and i believe that i was right all the way back then and i believe here it comes we have never been in such a vulnerable economic position before and it will take one major catalyst to start off a chain reaction of economic bombs this time around and it will make what happened in 08 look like a joke and I'm not saying it will be as bad as the Great Depression, but I always have to point to the worst-case scenario of the past when we set ourselves up for possibly a worse one in the future. And this is what happened in the Great Depression. and the, the stock market all-time high in 1929 before the crash, they started talking about recovery, recovery. And World War II was great recovery, and everything got better, and everything was going up, 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 up. But do you know when the stock market got back to the high that it had in 1929 before the crash? 
1966. Do you hear me? Do you feel me? And we weren't on a fiat standard at the time. Now, the converse of that is sometimes with fiat standards, they can pump money into things and fix them faster for a time. The question you have to ask yourself is, do we have one more in us, two more in us, or was that it? Did we already do that for the last time? And the come to Jesus moment is here. I believe the come to Jesus moment is on the way. I do say that I could be wrong. But even if I'm wrong, all that being positioned outside of this mess will do is give us the opportunity. Because the very best position you could have been in during the Great Depression was a bunch of cash when the market shit the bed. Because you don't care when it goes back to its all-time high at that point. You just care that it goes up every year. Anyway, with that, let's go ahead and get into my um, segment today. So I had a gentleman email me, and he said, I bought the Big Buddy propane heater based on your recommendation, and it came. And I bought the adapter for the grill size tank, 20-pound propane tank. But it says very clearly, Jack, do not put the big tank in your house and run the heater in your house. Because you blow up and die or some shit like that. Okay, let's talk about this from a couple different angles. Why do they say that in the first place? Because it's the law that you're not supposed to have a 20-pound propane tank inside your house. So they have to say it. Regardless of their... I'm not saying there's no risk. I'm saying even if there wasn't a risk, they have to say that to cover their ass. And there's no lawyer that would ever represent a company selling product like this that wouldn't tell them to do it. Because if you do the dumbest thing in the world and cause a, a problem for yourself, but you had the tank in the house, uh, they're covered. But even if it's probably their fault, they're probably still going to be covered the minute that you or whoever's still alive admits the tank was inside the house directly. And see, see what I mean? Like there's no good reason for them not to say this because it's the law and because it covers their asses in a variety of situations, including some we can't even think of. Yeah? Okay. That said. I still recommend you do it. I still recommend you do it. But I want you to understand something about this. What they're really worried about are two things. One, the tank will leak inside the house, fill it up with propane, suffocate people, and or explode. This is always a risk when you use gas. You need to be careful when you use gas, including gas that is plumbed in your house by a professional plumber from a gas service line run by the state. You still have to be careful with it because somebody blew their house up just a couple miles away from me about eight years ago. And fortunately, nobody was home, except three dogs that unfortunately died in it. It sounded like a nuclear bomb went off. We felt the house shake here several miles away from where they blew up. Uh, and they were on city gas. We're not, because we can't get it, but they were. So, that, that, you know, there's always a risk of that. The thing is that propane and natural gas both have an additive that stinks to high heaven if there is any leakage you will know it in your nose you may not know it if you left the house though so that'd be one reason okay but here's the reality there's two places that line is connected to that heater at the heater and at the tank by putting the tank outside the house you are only eliminating one potential failure point. And whenever you hook up anything with gas, you should take, because even I say you can smell it, maybe it's a very small leak and you don't notice it because the dog farted or something, right? 
whenever you hook up any propane, you should take a bottle with a spray bottle with some soap in it. So basically, a little spray bottle, a couple drops of, of, of detergent in it, like you'd use a check for leaks on a tire. Shake it up a little bit and spray it where the connection is and see if there's any bubbles. If there's bubbles, there's a leak. You need to make bubbles go away. But the way to do this, and it adds a layer of protection in your propane heating and any sort of problems with low oxygen levels or CO2 levels, put the damn thing near a window, run the hose through the window, put the tank outside the window, and close the window down on the hose... And leave the little crack. Leave the little crack. It's okay. If you don't want to leave the whole crack, cover up maybe 50% of the crack by taking a towel, roll it up, put it over your hose so you don't kink your hose. No one wants a kinked hose. And close down on it and leave that little gap for air. That'll create some air exchange. You make it less likely that in the odd event that something goes wrong and the sensors don't work in it or whatever, you don't suffocate yourself. Personally, what I do when I am using backup emergency propane heat here, the windows that I have actually open from the top and the bottom. I put the towel all the way across. I close the window down and prevent any real meaningful air exchange at the bottom. And then at the top window, I just barely crack the window. This is good practice whenever you're using something like this indoors. That's what I recommend. The little one-pound canisters, they're perfectly fine to use indoors according to the government, but two pounds of propane is a lot of propane to dump in your house. So I say when you use the small bottles instead of the large bottle adapter, that it makes a lot of sense to also check those with a spray bottle with a little soap in it. This is a good thing to have around. You can check for leaks on tires on your tractor and stuff like that as well. So it's a good thing to have. You can buy a little spray bottle at, at Dollar General for a dollar. Okay, and having a few spray bottles around and mark them with whatever they are. If you have different ones for different purposes. Like we make our own cleaner using a little bit of vinegar and water, for instance. Or we sometimes we use peroxide and water for the garden and certain things. We do that with some market. And just keep it and have it around and be able to check for it. The next thing I really, really recommend is that if you're going to rely on your little one-pound cylinders, they make an adapter. This adapter will allow you to fill your one-pound cylinders yourself using a 20-pound can. So that gives you more flexibility. Because there are times, like, one of the things I hate is buying a thing that's only for emergencies. Like, so my heater... If I'm going to go hunt in a box blind, I'll take my freaking heater with me. If it's cold out, I ain't going to be cold. And I don't want to drag a 20-pound tank into a box blind, right? But I will I will take a, a Big Buddy heater in there, absolutely. Or if I'm going camping at a cabin or something like that, that might be my backup heating source. And I just need as a backup. I'm only going to be there a couple of days. I don't need 20 pounds. So I think it's good to have flexibility to do both, okay? Now, here's the next thing. Somebody commented on the blog this morning, because I'm running this, the, the Big Buddy heater is my item of the day today through T-Spaz, and said, I had a couple of these heaters in the past, and I tried to light them recently, and they wouldn't light. I guess they're gummed up or something, and I'm afraid to use them. They either work or they don't. It's not like they're going to work and cause a problem. 
This is one of the superior things about propane over kerosene. Kerosene, you can mess around with wicks and stuff and have wick smoking and all. Propane heaters pretty much work or they do not. And it's likely there's nothing wrong with these heaters. And it may be that the the igniter on them uh, is not quite catching the propane or something. And I've found with the Big Buddy, sometimes if the igniter won't light the thing, especially if it's been stored outside in a shed or something that's really cold, that taking something like a lighter, especially the long stick ones like we use for lighting grills and shit, and put that up there and, and go ahead and turn it on and get it lit and run it for a bit, Whatever its problem is will go away once it's warm and it's been running propane through it. But here's another thing, and this is really important. Almost everything I've ever used that uses propane, um, other than grills, like fire pits, patio heaters, big buddy heaters, etc., right? when you first light them, you turn it to ignite, and you need to actually push the dial in. And when you push the dial in, you'll hear gas flowing. It's like a primer that gets things moving faster for initial combustion and warm-up, and then you can let go of it. It'll keep burning. Yeah? Okay. What will happen a lot of times, people will get something like a Big Buddy heater for emergencies. They'll use it. It works. They put it away, and they forget the startup procedure and when they take it out and try to use it again they don't i turned it dig not push the button it's going click 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 why didn't it light because dummy you didn't prime no propane into it okay that's why now if you wait until the power goes out at three o'clock in the morning and the damn thing's colder than shit and you're colder than shit and your fingers hurt and you're trying to get it up and running the kids are crying because power is out and it's christmas eve or whatever yeah you're really not going to remember. So this is what I recommend you do. And this is not just for propane. Anything that you might have to pull out in the middle of the night or somebody other than you might have to pull out in the middle of the night because you're not there that has anything, no matter how simple, of a startup procedure or a procedure to use it, make instructions for it, laminate it, and attach it to the damn thing with a laminated card with big print that's easy to read in the dark with a flashlight attached to your cap or in your teeth because you didn't buy the one that attaches to your cap. Because, no, you won't remember when you're shivering in the rain at 3.30 in the morning in February that you need to push the thing in. You won't. We develop this kind of muscle memory when we train something consistently across time. And that I do not think that the average person will ever train that way on how to light a heater or start a generator. So things like a generator, the gas needs to be on. You might be surprised. Sometimes it's hard to read a dirty-ass generator in the morning. And it's still dark out, and it's raining. And to which way that damn thing needs to be to be on. So you can take a picture of it and put it on your document that what on is and what off is. And it should be off. Turn gas on and with the thing, this is what on looks like. It's not overkill. It's not overkill. And, and Survivor, who's been around forever, is the one that brought that up. And thank you, dude, because I would have never even thought to bring that up if you hadn't done that. Uh, and that's a good case for making the documentation because we forget about shit until we need it. If you can do something at 3.30 in the morning in the freezing rain with a, with a flashlight in your teeth, you have trained well enough to do it without documentation. You're probably, again, 
starting generators, etc., starting heaters, you're not going to train them. It's, you got other shit in your life, right? Okay, and on that note, the item of the day today is the Big Buddy Heater. Winter is coming. It always does. And this is the number one backup heater solution for the most people that I recommend. They're, uh, they're about $150 bucks or something like that, $120. Bucks. Um, unless, and you need to know this too, because if you live in one of these places, then you probably want to get somebody to acquire one for you and send it to you or go pick it up in another state or another place. If you live in Massachusetts or Canada, you have to buy a different version of this product. And the different version of this product comes in a box that says it's for outdoor use only. Again, it's Massachusetts and Canada, and maybe there's some other place. There's literally no difference to the product other than the label on the box. Because in Massachusetts, you can't use it indoors, because in Massachusetts, it will magically kill you and your entire family. However, in Connecticut, it will not. That's bureaucrats for you. If you live in California, you're going to have a thing where you're going to have to check a box that says you read a bunch of bullshit that your masters and owners wrote for you. Uh, this is about Prop 29 or Prop 20, whatever the hell it is in California, Prop 65, where everything causes cancer. Uh, and so if there is one thing in there that's ever been tested in any way that causes cancer, it has to have a Prop 65 warning. In California, as stupid as California is, they didn't say it had to be on the box. They just said the customer has to see it before they place the order. So as dumb as California is, in this particular instance, Canada and Massachusetts are dumber than them. But you should not let this scare you. Do you know what comes with a Prop 65 warning from California? Kelp. Seaweed. Nor like nori that you make uh, uh, sushi out of or kelp, or any of that stuff. Why? Because it may contain things that have been shown to cause cancer. It doesn't mean it causes cancer. It might be one micro, milli, tiny nanogram of, let's say, some freaking element that's in the ocean that if you take 80,000 pounds of it, it will make your dick fall off and cause dick cancer. And so we have to have a Prop 65 warning for it. If you go to California, you see that sign everywhere. There's businesses that put that sign up on their door. It says there might be something in here that will give you cancer, Prop 65, because who in the hell knows what's in there. Maybe there's one grain of paint and some lawyer will get you. So just know that. You have to read, at least say you read the bullshit that your masters wrote for you, or if you're in Connecticut, I rec I'm sorry, Massachusetts, I recommend having a friend or family member in a neighboring state uh, take delivery for you so you don't have to pay 80 bucks more for a different box. And then you do whatever the hell you want to with it. But whether you have a propane heater or a backup kerosene heater or some other form of heat, I highly, highly, highly recommend that you have a backup form of heat. I would also say if you have gas service to your home, whether from a propane pig or natural gas service, but you're not going to have power, you're not going to have heat if the power's out. One of the things that you could do is you could have a professional plumber plumb in a couple locations for you that are designed to turn, you know, hook these things up, turn a valve, and run them off that heat. That's another option, but have a backup form of heat. My final advice, and it's in the write-up on this product today at tspaz.com, is 
do not believe, well, I have a, a, a fireplace, so I'm good. That's not how that works. Fireplace will generally warm up the room that it's in a little bit, maybe one adjacent room without a doorway, like an open space, like dining room, kitchen type thing, or you know, a living room, dining room type thing, a little bit. And then it does a decent job, and it's better than nothing. But what ends up happening is about 85% of the heat goes up and out the chimney. When anything goes up and out a chimney, it creates airflow, and it pulls air into the room with the heat, from the cold rooms and Mythbusters did a thing on this and it actually made like the peripheral rooms colder running the fireplace than not running the fireplace. If you're going to rely on a fireplace you need to get an insert that's designed to actually make it act more like a wood burning stove or you need some other form of supplemental heat and yes use your fireplace but then use your supplemental heat in your surrounding rooms. Anyway with that we've wrapped things up. I don't think that I'm going to get a Friday flashback done for you this week. I think the Friday flashbacks I've announced a few times uh, will begin not next week but the week following. But we'll see. I've got quite a bit of time left today. Maybe I can get uh, the first couple done and get my feet wet with doing them. But my plan is to do those once a quarter. I'll do 12 at a time. Uh, they're going to be all the interviews we've ever done. We'll start running sort of like rewinds but with a different format. Uh, specifically just because there's so much wisdom in that library of content. And it'll be a very easy thing for me to do, just go in order the next interview, the next interview. We're going to start at the oldest interview I can find and roll forward with those. There will be rewinds all next week because it's TSP 23. Another reminder, though, on my YouTube channel, we will be streaming all of the classroom presentations at the workshop. That will be Thursday, Friday, and Saturday Streaming will probably begin somewhere around noon most days. I'd have to look at the schedule to tell you. But each morning for two and a half hours, we have a hands-on outside class. We're going to be doing garden, uh, winter prep. We're going to do compost, and we're going to do biochar in that order. I'm sure there will be video of that that people will share, but live streaming that is just too much of a pain in the ass. So after that each day, we move indoors and do the inside Instructions. You know, John Pugliano is going to present. Matt Powers is going to present. Nick Ferguson is going to present. Um, lots of great presenters. Uh, and we will be live streaming all of that. So be aware of that next week. Even though we are on rewinds, there will be that form of new content for you. Uh, we'll probably even live stream some of the karaoke shenanigans that go on late at night. And Google will probably uh, take them down and say we're violating uh, copyright or some shit because you do that many well-known songs. One of them they're not going to see as a as a karaoke or a cover. Who knows? Anyway, guys, I will uh, be with you guys next week through Rewinds, and then the following week we'll be back with regularly scheduled programming. Are they going to bail you out or just run you around? They said you should have a house. American way a dollar down a dollar a month and you never have to pay there's a better way to do this let me show you a better way 